Welcome to the Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcast, where it's all about learning from the best minds in the sport so you can train smarter, stay healthy, and run faster now. And now your host, Lucas Felton. Hi everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcasts. I'm your host, Lucas Felton. In 1991, at the World Track and Field Championships in Tokyo, Japan, the men's marathon was held in truly sweltering conditions, described as the worst ever reported for a championship marathon. Steve Spence was able to handle it better than almost everyone, thanks to his innovative training, earning himself a bronze medal. Steve was ahead of his time in several ways. He used high weight, low rep strength training, and also bucked the accepted marathon training model by putting his speed work first and following it with high mileage and long runs. Also, Steve was one of very few runners to coach himself onto the Olympic team. Some of the things Steve and I talked about included how Steve became his own coach and lessons you can learn from his experience with self-coaching, the training program that allowed Steve to race consistently well for months at a time, Steve's unusual for the time approach to marathon training and weight training, how Steve approaches his own running since his retirement from elite competition, and Steve's coaching work at Shippensburg University, his alma mater, and his thoughts on the future of the sport. This was an amazing interview, especially for those of you who are interested in how to add strength training to your running, looking for innovative ways to train for the marathon, and who are trying to coach themselves. As usual, any resources mentioned in this podcast can be found at runnersconnect.net slash runninginterviews slash Steve Spence. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I did the recording. I'm your host, Lucas Felton, and thanks for listening. So, Steve, thanks so much for being on our show today. Can you uh, start off by giving us a bit about your running background and how you started? Well, I, I got started with running back in ninth grade. Uh, some buddies, I was a basketball player, so some of my buddies were uh, thinking about going out for cross country to get in shape for basketball, and and I had nothing else to do in the fall, so I thought it sounded like a good idea. And uh, my limited experience up to that point that I had had with running was always successful. And, you know, when we ran for basketball, as far as going back then, they called them suicides. I don't know what they call them now, but, you know, because that's somewhat inappropriate, I guess. But <laughs> uh, I, I do very well in those and, you know, almost always win. And uh, we had done some mile fun runs and gym class and things like that, and I would win those. So I thought that it might be uh, something I'd enjoy and maybe be good at. And I ended up being undefeated in cross country my freshman year. And, and uh, we ran junior high then. It was 7, 8, 9 was junior high, and then 9, 10, 12 was senior high. So I ran on the junior high team. And, and we raced a mile and a half. And... Yeah, so my first experience there was, was good, and then I played basketball in the winter. And then that year, instead of going out for track, I went out and played tennis because I also like to play tennis. And that was, was okay, and I did actually play varsity there. I was like our number five guy. But then uh, the following year with cross country, and you know, and, and then I was kind of sold on it and decided to do track, and, and it just progressed from there. So that was, let's see, it was, I'm, I'm remembering early to mid-70s or so? Yeah, 76 was the first year. That's okay. easy to remember because of the bicentennial year, and I remember getting some trophies and things from meets, and they uh, 
stress that that was the, the bicentennial, a lot of red, white, and blue trophies. I'm sure. So being that that's about when you started and started to get serious, who were some of your early influences or inspirations in the sport? I don't remember much from my first year uh, running as a ninth grader. Uh, I was kind of just getting a feel for it. And then uh, once I got that the track into track season, I started paying a lot more attention to what was going on. And I remember uh, I liked those people that could kick at the end of a race. And so my, my athletes that I kind of looked up to and, and idolized was, was Yifter was one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yifter the shifter. And Don Page was always someone that would sit and just come on like gangbusters like the last 100, 150 meters of a race as, as well as Dave Waddle, of course, with his closing speed. Or, or maybe just not slowing down as much as everybody else, I guess, is more probably more accurate. But it looked like a kick. So, I, yeah, those are some of the people that I really paid attention to. And I, I wasn't all that much aware of, like, Prefontaine or uh, Clark and some of, you know, some of the uh, guys that were more longer distance oriented or shorter. I was more focused on, it seemed like, more on the mid-distance at that point. Which Although is, Yifter, I guess, was a longer-distance runner, but, yeah. So, other interviews I've read with you and other things I've read about you indicate that you kind of became your own coach. For a good time on a time before you finished college, how did that kind of come about? Well, I felt like I had very solid coaching in high school. Uh, Jay Stanton was my coach. He and you know, I started working with him as a uh, when I was in tenth grade, and he's actually the one. He was my science teacher in ninth grade that did have uh, somewhat of an influence also as far as getting me to go out for cross country. But uh, he he had a linear based system, uh, and he was a high jumper hurdler basketball player in college. I think he was like a seven foot high jumper and ran ran well in the high hurdles. So he wasn't necessarily a distance runner, but after college uh, got into doing some marathoning and stuff like that. So he taught himself, learned about the sport, became, you know, cross country coach slash teacher. So he, he gave me a good foundation, I, I feel in high school as to what I needed to do. And then once I got to college, uh, we unfortunately had, and it was here at Shippensburg, but we unfortunately had a revolving door where I ended up with a a new coach every year that I was here. And it got to the point where there was not continuity. Uh, Coaches were coming in, and they they were young and a little intimidated as far as, you know, what they should be doing. And, and, uh, you know, after a while, they, they started asking me, so, see, what do you think we should do here? So I knew what I should do and what, what helped me. So I would say this is what I feel like I should do. And uh, a lot of times that was taken, and the team did it. And uh, unfortunately, it wasn't necessarily what the team and everyone the team should be doing. <laughs> but... Uh, it, it worked out for me then. I, I kind of was able to, you know, make my own workouts and figure out what I needed to do to be successful. And I was highly motivated, so it was a good 
a good fit for me. And then uh, that did prepare me well for post as a post collegiate, where I was able to coach myself and you know get get some information from other people. But uh, you know, on the day to day basis, I was deciding what I should do, and, and uh, it seemed to work well for me. So, how would you describe the training system that you use as post collegian? Uh, it was definitely still Lydiard based. Uh, I started working with Dave Martin, uh, and that you know I was influenced by that as well, and which was also a lot of, of Lydiard, you know, based based stuff. But uh, the main thing was uh, in in high school or in high school and college. I focused obviously more on speed. I still thought I was a miler in high school, and while I knew I wasn't in high school, but in college I still thought I was a miler, and I trained a lot like a miler but then uh, realized for the NCAA championships I wasn't quite fast enough to kick with those guys, so I would move up to the 5K, and I ended up winning two national championships at 5K, and I got one runner-up. But uh, So the, the speed was there, and then uh, once I got to be a post-collegiate, that's when I really started focusing on building my volume up and started doing 120 130 mile weeks and uh, what I found is that I did that and I got so much stronger but I didn't really lose the speed so I could still drop down and run you know 1500 or a mile just as fast as I was before uh, probably using different energy systems to do that but that speed was still there my body responded really really well just to getting in a lot of high volume and being consistent and uh, you know and that allowed me to be in the races and those longer races so that I could be there for the kick at the end and that's my my theory is you know I'd rather be in the race at the end and get out kicked than not be in the race at all absolutely so David Martin is a name that's come up in a couple different interviews most importantly with uh, with John Sinclair um, what kind of influence did he have on you? Well, uh, Sinclair was, was actually the one that uh, arranged for me to, to start working with Dave Martin. Uh, I went to Colorado in the summer of 87 and uh, actually quit my job as, as a, an insurance adjuster at Allstate Insurance Company uh, down in Chantilly, Virginia. And I had been there about a little less than two years. But during that period, I started, you know, it was 85, 86, and 87. And uh, I was doing road races and getting up in the morning, doing my morning run, going to work, doing run in the evening, and uh, was actually going to races and doing quite well and realized after a while that I, you know, there's no one ahead of me that actually had a real job. So... And then I started making as much money running as I was at my job and realized at that point that, you know, this is a pretty safe thing to, you know, give up my job and and, uh, give running a shot. But uh, what I did, uh, quit my job, I think, in May uh, of 87, and my buddy Billy King that ran against me in in, uh, college, he went to Millersville University, and he was a teacher, was going out to Colorado for the summer, 
he had already arranged housing out there because he was buddies with Sinclair. And uh, he asked me if I wanted to go. So I'm like, sure, I'm in. And uh, that was kind of like my internship where I was able to run with Sinclair on a daily basis and learn what it takes to be a professional athlete and a professional runner. Uh, and Sinclair saw my potential, introduced me to Dave Martin, recommended he, that he take me on as part of his uh, you know, marathon, elite ma- marathon development program. So, uh, but that's how I got introduced to Dave. And then, you know, we started working together and he uh, didn't necessarily coach me, but he gave me a lot of advice and I would develop my plan. And then I would go over that with Dave very carefully and he would make some recommendations. We'd make changes and uh, it was extremely helpful to me. So I was looking over some of your old results, and as you were saying, in the uh, in the summer of '87 was when you kind of started to really live the life of, of a professional distance runner. And so for the next several years, uh, man, it was like every every race anywhere that was any kind of significant, there was Steve Spence's name somewhere near the top of the results. Not always the winner, but always there. How did you maintain that kind of a form for that for so long? Well, one of the things I, I did was I raced sparingly, and uh, I did pick out maybe a dozen races per year and focused on those. Uh, and I didn't, you know, I'd rarely race back-to-back weekends or, you know, I'm a rarely race, you know, a hard effort more than once a month. And uh, in between those races, I do kind of like a mini cycle with my training where I do the, uh, you know, after a race, I would do a week of aerobic training, then a week of the anaerobic conditioning where I, you know, like some threshold work. Then I would do a week of the um, anaerobic capacity training where I do the, you know, repeats, and then I would sharpen up for a week and then race again. So, uh, you know, and that was, of course, after, a, a long base building period going into it and then I would have these you know maybe four or five months where I could race at that level by uh, doing these mini cycles between each race and it would keep me fit and get me re- really ready for the next race and you know, I was able to have, have a long season so what kind of things did you do to adjust for different race distances well, yeah, I think I alluded to it earlier that I was able to do quite a bit of volume with my training and I, I think still maintain my speed pretty well. And part of that was, you know, that I, I feel like I'm just, you know, have naturally have some pretty good turnover, definitely not a blazer, but I have some pretty good turnover. And I think the strength training was important as well uh, for developing that speed and maintaining the speed as I added the volume. And that allowed me to drop down and run anything from, you know, the, the 3K uh, at a pretty high level all the way up to the marathon. And, you know, but primarily I was training during that time more uh, probably like a 15K runner, you know, or 10K to half marathon type was the, the type of distance I was training for. Okay. And what kinds of things did you do for marathon training? Well, once I 
it, it was quite the experiment. I didn't really have a whole lot of guidance as I jumped into the marathon, and what I was doing wasn't necessarily working for me. But I felt like I was doing the typical build-up where you do a lot of base early and get in a lot of miles, and then the last you know, six, eight weeks, you focus on the speed work going into it. And I would end up getting to the marathon feeling like I was in really, really good 10K shape. But I didn't have the uh, volume that I needed at that point in the aerobic conditioning. Uh, and my body wasn't, wasn't performing at the level as far as uh, conserving glycogen. And it wasn't conditioned to conserve glycogen and, and do what I needed, be able to do what I needed to do to get through the marathons. I ended up bonking in my first five marathons. And then uh, my agent, Don Paul, uh, recommended that I try to reverse things. Like run some faster races, do your typical stuff. Don't even worry about the marathon until maybe eight weeks out. And then let's just, you know, then try just starting to, to do your base work and, and pile on the miles those last eight weeks. So uh, going into the Columbus Marathon in 1990, that was the first time that I got to try this approach. And, and going into the marathon, people ask me how, you know, they're like, well, you run so fast at, you know, 10K, at 15K, at 12K. What do you think you can do here in the marathon, I said, well, I think I can run really well if I don't walk, and because I walked in my first five marathons, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it, with that type of training, uh, it seemed to be exactly what I needed. I made it to 23 miles. I was still in contention, and then I really started working the last three miles, and those were actually the fastest. That was the fastest 5K segment of the race was my last 5K. And I was able to run down Mark Kirp and, and win, and that's what qualified me for the world championships and allowed me to run in Tokyo and have that opportunity. That was actually the, fir the first thing I ever read about you was long before I even knew much about professional running, and it was an article about uh, how the race didn't always go to the fastest. It went to the most prepared, and you were the example about uh, about going to Tokyo in 1991, where it was what was it over 90? I'm sure it was over 90 degrees and 90 percent humidity, and uh, you, maybe you weren't the fastest guy in the field, but you were the most used to running five minute pace, whatever it took, and uh, that's what got you to the end, to the finish in third place. Yeah, it was, it was actually a very interesting article. Yeah, that and the fact that I didn't go, I, I stayed off that fast early pace and uh, I was about 50 seconds or almost a minute behind at the turnaround and uh, it didn't take long until I actually ran up on the lead pack then because uh, I was just running a, a steady pace and they, they really slowed down once we started the second half of the race. Uh, yeah. So, but yeah, I... I was on top of my game at that point. Uh, Dave Martin was uh, integral in, in helping me prepare for that marathon. Uh, he was in Tokyo. He got a, a video of the course and drove over the course and supplied a video to me so I could see the course. Uh, 
they talked a lot about who was going to be in the race, how it would probably go, what conditions we were looking at, and uh, and still that's by far the worst conditions of any uh, major marathon and you know any uh, world championships or Olympics. But I was prepared for that, and I the important thing was I knew what I could do in those conditions, and I didn't let what anyone else did affect affect you know what I did in my race. So I'd like to go into that a bit. How did you approach preparing for a marathon like that in that kind of the kinds of extreme temperatures? Uh, well, I started out with doing something that you probably normally wouldn't recommend, which I went to Maine for the summer. And uh, fortunately, it was a they were setting record highs in Maine that summer. So uh, it didn't seem extremely hot to me because we're used to more heat and humidity here in Pennsylvania. But the people in Maine thought it was just terrible. And, uh, you know, get to mid-80s and... and uh, they thought it was un- unbelievably hot. So that, that ended up working out all right as far as helping me prepare. And then I did come back to Pennsylvania in early August and had a month here before we headed over to Tokyo. And, uh, and it was extremely hot here as well. You know, so that, that helped as far as preparation. But the main thing was I you know, got a little bit of heat preparation from that even though it still wasn't mimicking, you know, the conditions that we ran in Tokyo with the heat and humidity, but also learning how to take fluids on the run was very important. So I would line bottles up at, on a table at the track, and I would run around, and I'd, I'd put like 40 bottles out so that <laughs> I could practice grabbing the bottle that I wanted while running five-minute pace. And uh, I would grab my bottle, uh, run about 100 meters to kind of settle down, get back in my rhythm, and then I try to get like 10 ounces of that 16-ounce bottle down. And I got to the point where I could kind of just shoot it down, squeeze the bottle hard and kind of shoot it down real quick and toss it to the side. And so that was, you know, those were the, the preparations. Also just being, you know, very cautious uh, while well, focusing more on on the volume than the speed because we realized it wasn't going to be fast. I didn't have to be in super, you know, speed shape. I just needed to be strong and have the endurance. So that was the emphasis there that last eight weeks. And then one more last question about races like that. What, um, what were you drinking? Was it just water or was it like Gatorade type stuff? How did you approach the fuel part of it? Yeah, I, I drank at that time. I was drinking Exceed, and I don't even know if they make Exceed anymore. <laughs> Lemon Lime was the one that I drank mostly. as kind of like a Gatorade product. Okay, just to get the uh, get the carbohydrates and the glycogen in yep. over the course of the race. Yeah, and that, and that seemed to work well with my stomach. I had no problems with it. Yeah, and that's and one thing I wanted to mention your um, your approach to marathon training with uh, putting the quote-unquote strength part of it second versus first is actually kind of what people do to was what most of the uh top african guys do today so mm-hmm. you're you're uh kind of ahead of your time yeah it's kind of interesting to read but don don paul had gotten that from oh what was the 
I can't remember the name of the marathoner. He had run like a 207, and he was one of the top guys at the time. He was a, I forget where he was even from, but uh, that's that's what he had been doing, and Don recommended that for me, and, and that was exactly what I needed. Yeah, it certainly seems to have worked out well. So you uh, mentioned this briefly before, was the uh, the strength training and the weight training that you did. Um in researching this interview also, there's a, a lot of speculation out there about Steve Spence's weight training. What what did you actually do? What was the reality of it? <laughs> well, I, I started lifting uh, between my junior and senior year in high school. And it was something that really helped me make gains. Uh, and since then, every major uh, breakthrough that I've had with my running has uh, followed a period of strength training. So it's something that I do really believe in. Uh, there are definitely periods when I would take a break from it and wouldn't do any strength training or just do body weight stuff and core core work, things of that sort. But uh, I started with doing the Nautilus program, and uh, the gym that I went to where I was introduced to that uh, by a guy named Mike Feltzer, and he really believed in a total body program, and he even emphasized the legs. So he's like, you're a runner, you need to work your legs, you need to be strong, which at the time was not necessarily what a lot of people were thinking. And, you know, they thought you ran, your legs are strong because you're a runner, and you don't need to do that. So, uh, but we really worked the legs, and and... I went from 4.23 to 4.12 for the mile my between my junior and senior year. And then uh, I was able to continue doing that program kind of on my own through college. And then after college, as a post-collegiate, I uh, met up with a guy named Doug Lentz here in Chambersburg. And he uh, started working with me and, and helping me out here one day. Uh, physical therapy center and he had all the equipment and uh, Doug you know, started working with Dave Martin and they decided to you know, experiment a little bit with me and instead of doing like the high reps and the low weights which I typically was doing with the Nautilus equipment uh, Doug, Doug wanted to experiment with doing some lower reps, some higher weights and try to you know, build some strength that way and I think that that was part of, uh, yeah, definitely helped me and helped me make that breakthrough and get to the next level with the marathon and as well as some of the, the shorter races. So yet again, sounds like kind of ahead of your time because nowadays, well, I guess when you were, when you were in high school, that was the Sebastian Coe era. So, so that kind of strength training was starting to get more widespread, but doesn't sound like it was, but yes, the lower the lower uh, reps and higher weight was definitely something not used for distance runners, not for many years and not for several other years afterward. Right. I, look, I think that's interesting. Yeah, and, and you're right. That's what's you know being used today in a lot of a lot of ways, and uh, yeah, I think it was very helpful to me, and and uh, you know it's kind of neat to be on the, the ground floor there and being somewhat of a guinea pig. But I trusted those guys, and they, you know, explained things clearly to me as far as why this was going to work, and and I believed it, and 
you know, a lot of times that's half the battle. You got to believe what you're doing. Speaking of which, how did you approach your races mentally? Well, I did a lot of mental imagery and uh, especially, you know, going into the marathon in Tokyo because I had that time in Maine where I was up there and I was kind of isolated. I just had my, my wife with me and, and my daughter Neely, who at the time was only one year old. So um, we, you know, I, I would take a nap during the afternoon and, and when I woke up from my nap, I would do about 10 minutes of mental imagery each day. And I would just picture myself running on the course uh, and picture myself executing my race plan where, you know, I anticipated coming from behind and, you know, kind of running running by myself as I worked through the pack. And then I was also able to get a picture of who the competition was and and uh, see those guys out there on the, on the course with me. So... Uh, that's something that I, I really did as far as the mental aspect. And that's something I learned in college from Paul Kaiser, who was my uh, cross-country coach and track coach my first year here. And then he actually came back later during my college time and, and took over as head track coach again. But uh, he was big into the mental imagery and uh, did sessions with us. And it was something that I, I was really able to, grasp onto and, and use successfully uh, even now. But when I, when I went into races, uh, my goals were usually pretty conservative. Like for the world championships, I was like, you know what, I'd like to be, my goal is top 10. And, you know, I want to be opportunistic though. So if the, you know, the occasion arises where I can be competitive at the end and and maybe for the win or for a top three, that would be fantastic. But my goal was to, to be in the top 10. And that's, I'm very much a realist when setting goals. I'd like to set goals that I can achieve. And I'd like to set, you know, intermediate goals along the way that are very achievable as well that will support that long-term goal. So I'd like to move on a bit. What kind of training changes did you make when you started running masters races? Yeah, I that took a while to kind of work through that. Uh, I, the main thing was at that point, running was not the, my running was not the priority. Uh, you know, I was coaching, and I had a family with three kids, and you know, and, and not too long after I turned forty, we had Eli, who is now eleven, so I was about. 41, I guess, when Eli was born. So uh, my running definitely was not the priority. So I did what I could. Uh, I didn't like to travel to do races or anything. So I would just, if I had an opportunity to race locally and it was something I could do without stressing myself and the family too much, I would take that opportunity. But, uh, you know, or if we, we went to a meet somewhere, like I ran the Raleigh Relays 10K one year. And, and ran like 30-18, I think, as, as a master's runner. But uh, that was the adjustment, and and I would oftentimes, as far as my training, be jumping in and out of workouts, helping other people. So my running wasn't necessarily a priority, and when I did get fit, sometimes it was almost by accident, and more so 
it was it happened by helping other people and in fact uh not this past cross-country season but the cross-country season prior i had a uh woman on the team katie spratford who was a uh, you know somewhat of a beat runner and uh I knew that she wasn't going to have any girls to really train with because she was at a different level than the other girls on our team. So uh, I took it upon myself to get fit over the summer so that I could be her training dummy for the fall. She would do her workouts. She, she had a night class on the nights when we usually do our workouts anyways, and she wasn't able to work out with the team. So we would do the workouts earlier. And I trained with her all, all fall and ended up actually getting pretty fit myself because I was helping her. Yeah, so the goal wasn't necessarily for me to actually get fit and do some races, but uh, I was able then at the end of the fall season to jump in a 8K down in Richmond, Virginia, Neely. And uh, Neely asked me to run with her and help you know, pace her through a few miles. And my goal was to make it through three miles which I did, and then I said goodbye to her as she ran away from me. But I ended up in 25-45 for 8K, which isn't bad for a 51-year-old. That race, uh, I remember that race made quite a few headlines around the running world. <laughs> but, yeah, so that's that's kind of where I am with my running now. It's like I, I really try to help others, and I don't get, you know, I've been there and done that, and it's... I don't really have any goals except to try to keep running sub five every year. Um, but other than that, I just try to have fun with it and help others. And a few weeks, well, about a month ago, we had a meet here at Shippensburg and one of our alumni who's, uh, just turned 40, uh, had talked to me over the winter and he's like, Steve, can you, I want to run this, you know, the college meet and, run unattached and try to break 17 for 5k he goes can you help me do it and i told him that i would give my best effort to be somewhat fit at that time and be able to help him get through 5k and in, in sub 17 and then word spread and another masters guy in the area here he's like that's my lifetime goal is to break 17 can i join you i'm like sir <laughs> your $10 entry fee and you come on in. And anyways, I was, I was out there to help those guys. And, uh, so I just started running 81s and we ended up running 1649. The one guy didn't make it. The, the alumni they initially asked me to help didn't, didn't make it, but the other guy made it and, you know, got his first time under 17, which was very exciting. Well, that's really cool. That's cool. That, that's, very satisfying for me that's a that's a very that's a very unique approach that's very uh it's, it's very different uh tell us about that that streak of sub five miles i think it's 38 years now yeah the, you know we started uh some of those years aren't aren't necessarily everyone documented but uh it started when i started running in uh 1976 during that uh cross-country season I was able to go sub five in a workout and or, or a time trial. And then, uh, you know, every year after that, I ended up running, I think, for, you know, 20 something as a, as a sophomore in high school. So, you know, all through high school, college, and then 
you know, post-collegiate for a long time. That was not a problem. And then uh, when I was about 37, 38, you know, shortly after I had, you know, run out of reasons to keep running uh, professionally, I started thinking I was, you know, was pretty unfit at the time. Started thinking, you know what, I haven't even run a sub-five-minute sub mile yet this year. So I ran for a couple weeks and jumped you know, jumped in there in a workout and ran a five-minute mile with my team. You know, and then every year after that, I've made it a point to, uh, at some point, run a sub-five-minute mile. That's it. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's something that gets that gets talked about <laughs> at, on, on message boards and other places here and there. Whenever yeah. it happens, yeah, it's, it's it's a little. It's not the most. Uh, it's a little unconventional, but it's it's interesting to see all the time. Yeah, and I've already knocked it out for this year. I ran uh, back in February. We had a meet at Bucknell, and we arrived about two or two and a half hours prior to the first track event. So I just warmed up. I didn't tell anyone I was doing it except my assistant coaches. I had one time in and one videotape in. I just warmed up, did some strides, and took off and then uh, you know the next thing I know my the whole team's like around the track and some members from other teams are around the track like yelling for me and stuff and <laughs> so yeah. it, was, it, it was fun I tried to do it low key but it didn't it didn't end up working out that way right but I ended up running 229 for the first 800 then 227 so a negative split and went 456 uh, it was a little harder than what I anticipated that it would be <laughs> But I was able to, to get it done, and I thought I had the opportunity to do it there. I knew I was fit enough, so, I, so you never know where you're going to be later in the year, so I thought I might as well do it. Fair enough. So how long do you think you can keep the streak going? I have no idea. <laughs> as I long as possible? Year by year, and, uh, you know, I think that, you know, this summer I would like to be able to get down where I'm close to running 5k at that pace uh, i've been able to train you know somewhat consistently all spring and i'm doing pretty well now so maybe by the end of the summer well we'll see won't we in yeah 16 minute range for 5k which would be fun yeah well as i said we'll see so um tell us about how you came to become the uh the track coach at chippensburg your alma mater I started volunteering in 87, as we had spoke about. I spent the summer of, of 87 out in Fort Collins, uh, came back to grad school at Shippensburg, and uh, at that point I started volunteering as a coach. And I was able to volunteer for 11 years uh, while I did my professional running career. And then uh, when, I, when it got to the point where I was too old and slow to make any money running, hmm. I needed to move on and find something else to do. Uh, they were kind enough to hire me as the, uh, well, they, they brought me on as a full-time assistant for about nine months and then made me the head cross-country and track coach here the following year. And uh, I was the head cross-country and track coach for men and women for about eight years. And then uh, I was able to convince administration here to hire another full-time coach to come on board with me 
and then eventually take over as the head track coach. And that was Dave Osanich, who's in that position now. So, um, I'm, you know, at this point, I'm head cross-country assistant track, and that's worked very well because I can work with the distance runners year-round and really focus on, you know, what we need to do in cross-country versus on a track program during cross-country season. Right. So as a coach, how do you go about constructing training programs for someone? The main thing I work with is goals. Uh, I want to find out what they want to do, what they want to accomplish, both short-term and long-term. And then you know, I need to learn about the, the athlete and the person and, and find out you know, what level of motivation they have, their you know, what their likes and dislikes are, how much time they're willing to put into things, uh, you know, what sacrifices they're willing to make, and, and you know, in addition to what, you know, they have accessible maybe at home in the summer regarding weight training, pools, uh, running venues, things of that sort, and then from, you know, can construct a program based around those things. And what I just did, we had, 16 new runners coming into my program next year uh, for cross country, and I just then a lot of them have just finished their high school track seasons. So I sent them a questionnaire uh, regarding exactly what I just discussed, as well as their injury history and, and running history, uh, as far as when they started, number of miles, and things like that, so that I can tailor the program to them and, and prescribe the appropriate paces and, and volume. And do you use a good amount of weight training with your athletes now? Uh, we definitely get in the weight room at certain points, and then at certain points I have them taking a break from it. I think this year we did a pretty, this past year with cross-country, we did a pretty good job of, of not overdoing it in the weight room and doing an appropriate amount. The year before, I was doing way too much with them in the weight room, so I, I consulted with Doug Lentz, and he agreed that we needed to definitely scale that back quite a bit. So, But, yeah, it, we, we like to take advantage of the summer when we're doing base building as a time to hit the weights, and then after the cross-country season, because uh, that season usually, you know, for some ends it, ends at the end of October, others more towards the end of November, then that, you know, maybe two-month period is a really good time to reestablish some work with the weights. And then, you know, as we approach track, start to taper taper off a little bit and go on more of a maintenance program. Sure. So along with your coaching, you've gotten the opportunity to coach your daughter, Neely, current uh professional runner for the Hanson's Brooks group in Michigan um pretty much from when she started running all the way through college tell us about that experience yeah it was definitely a unique opportunity in the sense I got to work with you know an incredible athlete and she uh mentally and and physically she she was able to put it all together at a young age she had very clear goals when she was you know Starting this all started to take off when she was 13 years old. She knew what she wanted. She's like, I want to go to Foot Lockers, and I want to be a professional runner. And you know, she. So I was able to really look long term with her, and um, 
you know, so and she sputtered a little bit here and there, but for the most part, she was very focused on her goals and uh, and and uh, was very extremely motivated. So she is easy to work with. You know, she would under she understood running. Uh, she lived, breathed it, and and loved everything about it. So it was it was an, you know she was an extremely easy person to coach, uh, and she communicated well with me as far as you know giving me feedback. And you know when when you're living with someone, it's a lot easier as well. To right. See how they're handling the workouts. You know how much sleep they're requiring. Uh, and of course, it's easy to control the easier to control the diet when you're pretty much buying the food for them. So it it was a, definitely a unique experience, uh, and you know I credit Neely with the with doing all the hard work and making the sacrifices in her life to to make that happen. And but it's you know the truth was I don't know if there's really sacrifices she made because she she just loved doing it. And she loves everything about running and training and, and being around it. She just got over uh, some pretty decent surgery. Is that right? Yeah, she had uh, a genetic defect with her knee where the outside is on both kneecaps. But on the, the outside, just a small piece of bone didn't fuse together properly. So it was kind of a little gap there. And... She ran a race on Thanksgiving Day in in Detroit. I think there's like 22,000 people in the race. It's you know a turkey trot, but it, it snowed about five inches right before the race. And instead of being smart and saying, "Well, I'll use this as a tempo run, or I'll just run it for fun, or not run it at all," she stuck with her plan and she went out and ran as hard as she could in the snow. And uh, still ran, I think, 34.07 and just missed the course record. But yeah, it, it took a toll on its body, all the slipping and sliding. And then a couple days later, her knee just blew up. And people were thinking it's IT, and then they started thinking other issues when it wasn't responding to that. And finally, she got back here to Shippensburg, uh, I think, in February. And... Uh, talked with our with our uh, physical therapist here that she's been seeing for a long, long time, and they're like, "Well, no one's really done an X-ray on this yet. Let's we've tried all this stuff. Let's get an X-ray before we do anything." And then that's when we, you know, found out what happened, and that that piece of bone just broke off and fractured. It was an easy surgery. It took about five minutes, and she walked out. So the other side is the same, but it hasn't broken off yet. And they said it may never break off and may never be a problem. So they're going to uh, only address that if it becomes an issue. So she's back to to running uh, and she's up in Colorado right now at about 9,500 feet uh, doing some initial adaptation to altitude. Then she's going to go down to Boulder for six weeks. Well, we wish her the best of luck in in, in recovering from that and uh, in the future. So, Steve, do you have any plans for an autobiography at any point? Uh, someone asked me a long time ago, 
and I forget the name of the person. I think it was a sports writer out in Columbus, Ohio, who I got to be friends with, and he he followed me pretty closely, and he wanted uh, dibs on that, but <laughs> nothing has come come of it. And I don't know if my my life and my running career is all that interesting compared to others, but uh, that that was the only talk of an autobiography that I can remember. So I have a couple more things I want to address. Um, one of the things that's a big that's a big deal in the sport of running is uh, you know is popularizing it and, and sponsorships and all that kind of thing. So how do you think more runners can be turned into you know fans of running? Yeah, well, the NCAA right now is really trying to take some steps to make that happen, and they're trying to shorten the meets. Uh, they want to go back to. Well, they want to score the meets for one thing, which I think is a, a good idea because, you know, we right now a lot of the college meets aren't even scored. So you go back and the paper at the school wants to do an article on the meet and they're like, so who won? How did, how did you do? And like, well, we had some good performances and so-and-so did this and so-and-so did that, but they like, but who won the meet? And we like, well, it wasn't scored. And uh, so they're requiring, I think, that all meets be scored. And I think that's going to help. And shortening them, I think, would also be beneficial to some extent. Uh, you know, I think the road races are great as far as, you know, we've had this running boom with the, the uh, charity-type runs, and that, that's fantastic. But, you know, so like I think you're what, alluding, what you're alluding to is a lot of people running but are they really fans of the sport and are they following the elite runners? And I think the crit style race is another thing that's very helpful. And I know they're doing that. And I think, did they do that in the Olympic trials? Remind me what that is again. The, the crit style race is like they do in cycling where you have like maybe a six mile loop or something or an eight mile loop and run a marathon like that for the elite races. I don't recall if they did that in this past Olympic trials. I know that's how it was for the men in 2007 when it was in Central Park. Right, but I don't know. Did something in Houston as well. Was that for the women? I don't remember what the course was like in Houston. I think that was a, a similar style. And, and so I think that's that's helpful. You know, I think packaging the races, sort of the meets for television and for the webcasting is... is you know, doing a better job packaging those and announcing and having announcers that really know what they're talking about that can explain things, I think is extremely helpful. And, and, and announcers that actually know the athletes, you know, creating some matchups would be good and getting the top runners to, to race each other. And... Uh, Trying to think, well, I think just being accessible, like Neely has a blog, uh, NeelyRuns.com, and she's really good at, at promoting herself and being in touch with the, the public, letting them know what's going on with her, and uh, she's very transparent, and, and, you know, with her training and and her injuries and things like that, where when I was running at that level, I was the type of person like, look, I just want to go off by myself. I want to train hard and I want to show up well, and then I want to go away again. And <laughs> so I wasn't the, 
you know, definitely the best person as far as promoting the sport. But she's she's done an outstanding job with that, and you know, definitely proud of her for for doing that. Well, sounds like some good suggestions. Um, what advice do you would you have for someone preparing for their first race ever? I think the main thing is to set yourself up for success. Be conservative. You know, one of my friend Giles, uh, Giles Norton, who I met up in Maine when I was training up there and have kept in touch with, I remember one time he told me, you know, you got to have three goals. He's like, you know, have that pie-in-the-sky goal. It's like, what can you do if everything goes great? How's it going to work out? And then have a more realistic goal. Like, what do you really think you can do here? And then also have a backup goal. What if things don't go so well? How are you going to handle it? What are you going to do? You know, are you, uh, is your goal to finish the race, or is that not necessarily a goal? Are you willing to get out and you know, live to fight another day or something? But uh, anyways, I always, I always thought that that was interesting. So when I, start, when I uh, set some goals and work with uh, goal-setting with people, I, I oftentimes have them make three goals like that. But I'd say just be conservative, and, and, you know, if it's the first race, the main thing is you want to have fun and set yourself up for success. You know, it starts small. It's not make a marathon the first race. Right. <laughs> yeah, maybe a, maybe a, a local two-mile fun run or something, or a mile fun run. It's a good place to start. Yeah, absolutely. So just so to finish off, this is my last thing. I just want to ask five quick things. Okay. Number one, what was your pre-race meal? Pre-race meal? Uh, usually if it's a morning race, I would just get up and have some toast and a cup of coffee and, and some sports drink leading into the race. And what was your favorite workout? Well, I liked, I liked a lot of workouts. I, liked, I definitely liked the long run. But uh, one of my favorite workouts on the track was the 5K simulation, and uh, what I did there is I would go start off with a 300, and I do it all in the same recovery jog. But I would go 300, 500, 800, and then back down on the same recovery jog. And what was and, your favorite race event to run? Uh, my favorite distance was like the where I had the most success I think was the fifteen Ks. Okay. And my my favorite event that I that I did and where I also had the most success was down in Jacksonville at the River Run. One of the fun things about that is you know, I, and is is pretty much the only place uh, in the United States where I would go and I would actually be recognized on the street. And you know, I remember going down to the boat ferry because they would they would uh, put us in the hotel across the river from the landing and then we would take the ferry across and I went down to the ferry to get a ride over to the landing to get some dinner you know a couple nights before the race and the ferry operator's like Steve how's it going you know good to see you again come on board and then he came over talked to me about the upcoming race and you know so it, it was a unique experience here in, in the United States. And, you know, it's not something I would like to have. Uh, I wouldn't want to live my life like that. But, but every <laughs> so, now and then. 
Yeah, but every now and then it's it's kind of fun to experience that. And what would you do for fun during your elite years? Well, I I like the recreational sports. Uh, I got really good at ping pong, pool, <laughs> uh, played some golf, things like that. Where the things that weren't too taxing on my body, and uh, you know, but I I love watching football. is probably my favorite thing to watch. So uh, do a lot of that as well. And finally, what race would you have loved to run but never got a chance to? Uh, New York City Marathon. And, yeah, I see just the, the volume of competitors and, you know, and it's just amazing. And I wish I would have had that opportunity, but it never never happened. Dave Monty, even up to a couple of years ago, was still talking to me about it when I would see him. You know, and then Neely would talk to him, and he'd be like, yeah, we still need to get your dad up here to run this race. <laughs> mm-hmm. at, at this point, I have no desire to ever run a marathon. Uh, 5K is about the right distance for me now because <laughs> I can run it, I can have fun, I can run, push myself hard, and then the next day I can still go out and run again and feel good. But even five milers and 10K seem long to me now. <laughs> well, I suppose you never know. Maybe it'll happen someday. Maybe. Well, Steve, thank you very much for being on the show. We really appreciate your time, and we wish you the best of luck in the in the upcoming years at Shippensburg. All right. Thank you very much, Lucas. It's been my pleasure. Yeah, it's been great talking to you. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye-bye. This has been a Runners Connect podcast. We'd love it if you could leave a short review on our iTunes page to let us know what you think of our podcasts and how we can make them better for you. Also, if you have a question about this episode or any other, please don't hesitate to ask. You can leave a comment on the webpage or leave us a voicemail at 617-356-7969. We'll do our best to answer as many of these questions as we can, either in a future episode or in one of our monthly Q&A sessions. I'm your host, Lucas Felden, and thanks for listening.